0: Hey, dickheads! We have a special pink laser beam of truth that's beaming only from San Diego, California, although two locations. Uh, we talked to Professor Craig Callender, a professor of science and philosophy at the University of California right here in San Diego. He has a Ph.D. from Rutgers University and where he wrote a thesis entitled Times-Arrow. He is an expert at time. So this entire episode is devoted to, you guessed it, the march of time, whether forward, sideways, or backwards. And we're going to get into all the issues related to Philip K. Dick's work in time travel and popular famous works of science fiction. Um, Geeking out about science fiction. But anyways, it's a really good one. We're really proud of it. We hope you enjoy. Thanks, dickheads. Hello, Professor Craig Callender from the University of California, San Diego. Welcome to the Dickheads Podcast. Oh,
1: hi. Thank you for having me.
0: So our subject today is one that you do a lot of writing and research about and is considered an expert in. How does someone who uh, is a professor of philosophy get interested in time?
1: Well, I've always thought of it as, you know, when I was looking around for topics and that to think about, I always thought of it as one of the last great mysteries. You know, so up there with consciousness and that, um, you know, so we know that time exists, uh, we, you know, it's not just some sort of made up thing, uh, it's deeply important to our lives. It's also the subject of many different sciences. And so for me, it always seemed, you know, the perfect sort of topic to do because, you know, I had one foot in the, the real world of science and that. But then also, you know, deeply mysterious and strange and important to us. Uh, So for me, it
0: just, uh, well, it sucked me in. Um. (laughs) Right. So there's a lot of physics involved in this. Um, As a professor of philosophy, did you have to do a lot of training in physics or do more than your average physics courses being a philosophy person?
1: Yes. And, uh, it wasn't easy. Uh, yeah, so I took many courses in physics and I even wrote, uh, research articles in physics. And so it probably had read as much physics as philosophy since 1990 or so. Right. Uh, so yeah, it's been a lot of physics.
0: Right. Well, I'd imagine you'd, you'd kind of have to because, for example, I mean, space and time are pretty, are, are the same thing, or at least that's the theory from Einstein, correct?
1: Yeah, uh, after Einstein came up with this theory, then his supervisor Minkowski said, you know, famously said that, uh, space and time were doomed to fade away into mere shadows and that they was just gonna be, re- be replaced by space time. And so that the kind of picture you have in relativity is one of instead of objects occupying different locations and then evolving through time. Instead, just think of a kind of manifold of a bunch of events, you know, your birthday, this record, this, uh, uh, interview, all sorts of, you know, two particles hitting each other. Mm-hmm. Think of all those events sort of laid out. And then there's still a difference between the space-like and time-like directions on that sort of mosaic of all events. But, um, but which one is space and which one is time? What aspects of each event? Our spatial and temporal, uh, can change depending on who you are. Um, so they'll get completely mixed up, but they get a little bit mixed up. So take two events that are not connectable by a light ray. So two events that happen so fast with respect to each other that no light could get from one to the other. Think of like these two events like that. Now they actually get those two snaps together. In this rest frame, they'd have to be like one billionth of a second apart, in, as measured in this rest frame. But if I could get them so you know so much that the, no light could, from the one could get to the other, then there'd actually be in relativity there'd be no uh, objective order about which, what is which happened first. So things that are close up, that's generally not going to be the case. But maybe there's something going on in Andromeda, you know now. And whether it happened before or after this podcast is, is indeterminate. Uh, it depends on what, what, who you are, uh, where you are, how fast you're moving.
0: Right. And so I, I know we like to think of things to be measurable by distance, and some things are measurable by time. For example, we have, uh, for example, a mile or a second or a minute, for example. For example, um, which do you, do you have an opinion on? Is there one that is more reliable than the other, or can, are they indivisible because space and time we've discovered are are the same thing? Does that question make sense? I i'm I'm trying to make it as as lame as possible
1: here. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, that's more a question of sort of like what units we want to use, uh, maybe. Uh, and then, you know, people do, you know, there has been a gradual shift over the last hundred years, as I understand it, to using the second as, uh, you know, the sort of foundation of most of the, the units that we use. And so we define a meter in terms of how fast, uh, you know, light will, in terms of how fast light will go across, uh, space. Everything is, you know, getting more and more things are getting tied to the cesium atom uh in a second defined in terms of its uh frequencies. Um, that's yeah. not so much about relativity, that's more about like which which units you want to use and which are more reliable.
0: Well, and more. I I just listened to um a talk by um the cosmologist Paulin Sutter. And he was talking about the cosmic calendar, the concept of the cosmic calendar, reducing the entire what we know about the universe into a calendar year. And basically he was calling BS on the the thing. And he said at the end, the only thing that we can truly measure, the most important thing that we can truly measure is the second. And that's what you're talking about, how when it comes down to time, uh, since Time is relative, and and gravity pulls us at different times and spaces. Is that why the second is becoming so important to people in measurement?
1: Um Yeah, to be honest, I'm not hundred percent sure. I mean, I, I think it's just because you know you have uh so you get the laws. The laws sort of the laws define the second, and they define also you know a meter and things like that, and other you know and spatial distances. Um. And then there's a question of how do you match stuff in the world to that theory Mm -hmm. things in the world. So sometimes people think, uh, and this is like a pet peeve of mine, sometimes people think that, you know, you just sort of see an object and you think, oh, that's a clock, or that's a good clock.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: What makes it a clock? You know, there's just, you know, so if you're actually thinking about a clock on the wall, you know, what makes that a good clock? It's just some physical object that's moving. The only thing that makes it a good clock is that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's coming back to its, uh, initial state again and again. And it's doing so that in a way that approximately matches what the, that, you know, the duration that physics is talking about. Uh, similarly, like with a meter stick, you know, if you actually took a meter stick and, it, you know, took a ruler, you know, that wood is going to be expanding and contracting depending on the temperature. And so it's going to be a very imperfect. Uh, you know, uh, instantiation of a meter. The same thing happens with clocks. They're all imperfect. You know, so when you say, so when they say they define, so this would get kind of philosophical. So when they say they define, you know, a second in terms of, uh, some frequency of the cesium atom, but then they say that they know that that clock will go wrong in like a billion years. What do they mean when they say that they know it will go wrong? You know, if they, if they really defined it in terms of the second, if they define the second in terms of that, how could it ever go wrong? Mm-hmm. But really, they're not defining it in terms of the that particular object. They're, it's always being defined in terms of the laws of nature. And then you're just finding some things in the world that sort of best approximate those things.
0: And, and how how are seconds defined? I mean, it, that has to be somewhat of a recent in in the grand scheme of history thing that we have like an actual scientific definition of what a second is because you can't have minutes or hours or anything if you don't have that foundation of the second that's the most important part right
1: yeah but again i think you the real answer is that you're defining it in terms of this kind of ideal theory with a, uh, the ideal laws mm-hmm. so if you think about say like newton's laws you know so if we uh, in free fall if you were in free fall, then max you could go, I don't know, 32 feet per second squared. So that implicitly defines what a second is. A second is that amount of time such that something in free fall, you know, given the right idealizations, uh, could fall that distance. And so you don't really get a kind of, uh, you know, a definition of, you know, it's that clock, that defines the second, or this one, or this pendulum clock, or that one, or this one. All those clocks are all wrong, eventually. (laughs) Right. And so it's really just the theory that gives you it. And so all you're really doing is saying, oh, that thing out there, it behaves a little bit like that term in the theory.
0: Right. And I do want to tell our listeners that we're going to loosen up and talk about science fiction a little bit more later on in the interview. (laughs) And you have a little bit more fun, but I, I, I'm i a nerd for this stuff, so I really want to get into it with somebody who's, like, spent their life thinking about it. So, I had this thought a couple years ago, um, uh, back when, um, and you're a professor at the University of California, San Diego, and we're here in San Diego, so just to keep it local a little bit... Um, Back when we had a football team that we, that myself and Larry, our engineer, used to give a shit about, um, a couple years ago, I went to see a Chargers, uh, Monday night football game against the Steelers. And I had this really weird experience where, uh, because my father is a lifelong Steelers fan, and at the time I was a Chargers fan. And the Chargers had led the entire game. And with three seconds left to go in the game, and it was 8.30 um, for us. It was 11.30 on the East Coast where my father is They're in Indiana because they were on Eastern Time Zone at the time, which is a whole other issue because Indiana is weird with time zones. But we were watching this football game live, and I was at the game, and this last-second play where the Steelers went had a go-ahead touchdown, and I called my father basically to curse him out because his team beat us. <laughs> Right? But he hadn't seen it yet, right? And he didn't know that they had won because of the delay between when it happened live and when it made it to the East Coast, but it was only by a couple seconds. So I still got to hear him laugh at me. <laughs> <laughs> and of course there was a lot of Steelers fans and they were yelling at me. So I had this like I had this concept of it was eleven thirty for him, it was eight thirty for us there was this last second play, so there was only three seconds in the game before the running uh, Le'Veon Bell ran in for the touchdown, and there was all these weird issues of time that were floating around making me go, Jesus Christ, time is bullshit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because there's the seconds of the game, and there's the time zone in Indiana, which Indiana should be in the central time zone, but they're in the eastern time zone, so it's 11.30 there and all these things were going on and then i thought to myself gps sometimes they give you that they're they try to give this concept that there's this one global time that goes by greenwich means but um with the curvature of the earth with gravity and everything is there any concept of the one moment that's going on is that a real philosophical concept is that a is there a real physical concept that's a lot of question for that, or a lot of talking for that one question. But I really wanted to get across the idea of what I was thinking about that night, and how weird it was to me that that was all going on. Anyways, sorry, Craig. It's
1: <laughs> okay. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, um, well, let's see if I try to unpack that a little bit, then... <laughs>
0: I know, that's... there's a lot, but is there a real physical time that we're all at, at the same time? Um... Maybe, I don't know,
1: if this is satisfying at all or dodging it, uh, but, you know, approximately.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, because, I mean, the concept of Greenwich Means is supposed to be that that is always the time at one spot on the planet, correct? Or, or am I wrong about that?
1: Yeah, so Greenwich Mean Time is one way of, you know, setting up a kind of uh, conventional system of, of time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um but it's only, uh well, there's a lot of things going on, you know, so like the GPS uh you're talking about, that's making relativistic corrections, you know, all in your smartphone and that, that's all making relativistic corrections, uh, uh both for gravity and just for regular special relativity reasons. Um, when you were talking to your dad, though, you know, that what you were noticing was the lag, mm-hmm. and... That uh, is actually, I think, really interesting because I think one thing we don't really pay attention to and in some ways we're designed uh, to not pay attention to are these legs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so recently in psychology, they've discovered some people who, um, you know, can notice the legs. They've got various... So if we were talking to each other, mm-hmm. you know, it takes a while for the sound to get over to you. Uh, my lips might still match my, uh, the sounds, though. You know, the visual impression of the lips might still match the sound. Um, notice that that's kind of funny that that happens, right? So if somebody comes up close to you, their lips still match their sound. If they walk way, far away from you, their lips still match the sound. Even the ones bouncing off their face, you know, by light, at the speed of light, you know, uh, 300,000 kilometers uh, per se- per second. Um, sound super, super slow. Um, and yet still you're, you're them together as uh, it's happening now. You don't notice the lag. Um, but some people do notice the lag and it's, you know, so they'll say, so if you say hi to them, they'll, they, they will might hear you the hi and then see your lips move or the other, or the other way it could happen. Um, and so we don't really tend to notice that sort of thing, except for connect scenarios like when you're talking to your dad, then, you you know, because the um, live versus non-live, you then end up noticing this lag. But if you really did notice, uh, this lag is happening all the time all over the place, you know, even just in the room with you and Larry. Um, and if you really you know, were able to pay attention super, super carefully, you would notice all these lags, and it would be really weird. And then you would never think that there was this sort of big uni- un- universal time in lo- you know marching lockstep that everyone would agree upon. I don't think.
0: Right, and I and and I'm wondering about how high altitude air travel affects us when we're going between time zones, because it seems like that would be a time where we might really notice it. You know what I'm saying? Like. Uh, Because we are at high altitude and you're traveling really fast, like, I know it's very small numbers, the, the relative changes, but, you know, when people have the experience of, you know, flying back from the East Coast and you gain hours and things like that, like, I wonder, you know, how perceptible those things are versus, like, how real is it? You know, that, like, do you lose time when you do that? Uh Well, traveling faster,
1: yeah, there's a little bit of time dilation. And so relative to the people on the ground, you've, you've, uh, aged a little slower. Mm -hmm. So there's been a few fewer ticks of the clock on the body clock, uh, relative to them. Um, that reminds me of a, a good book that's not really science fiction, but it's kind of, uh, by Lightman called Einstein's Dreams. I don't know if you've ever heard
0: of it. I have heard of it. I haven't read it. But
1: these chapters, sort of a different way relativity could have gone. And one of them was where uh yeah, there are fewer ticks the higher up you are. And so rich people then tried to move up higher and higher so they could have fewer ticks of the clock relative to poor people down <laughs> below. <laughs> right. So they spend their lives in planes and cities that fly <laughs> and stuff.
0: Um, right. Well, that, you know, well, it is something because, um, when you, you do really get a concept when you travel across time zones, like, you know, like, I know some people don't really notice it. Oh, it changed, we changed two hours or we gained two hours back. But, you know, it's impossible for me as a science fiction writer, reader, consumer, critic to not think about what that means to, like, oh, I just skipped two hours right now, you know? Because, I and I know, to a degree, we're all time travelers, we're just all moving one second at a time forward, right? So... Um, but I wonder, there's something that you write about a lot in the Introduction to Time, the uh, graphic novel, or the graphic um, book, um, about tenseless time. And I think uh, that's a concept that you know, we always think of things in the either the present tense or, um, you know, future tense or past tense, but there is this concept of time without a tense. Could you explain that to our listeners, what uh, tenseless time is? Yeah, so
1: if you think, the idea is to sort of think of time like space, you know, so it, when we think of space, we don't, uh, you know, we know, you know, San Diego's here, Boston's here. New York, Paris, London, they're all, they all exist. Uh, can't see them, but they exist. And we know that, and we don't think that the, the spatial here is special or carves up the universe into two or anything like that. But when it comes to time, uh, we, we do tend to do that. Uh, you know, it's very important to us that we do. And so we, we carve up the universe into past and present. Um, so If you think about the other, you know, but you don't have to. You, you know, and in fact, physics doesn't. So you could just make do with earlier than and later than relations, mm-hmm. and just say, "This event is earlier than that one. That one's later than that one." Just like this one's to the right of that. That one's to the left of that. Um, and so you could just think of uh, that. There's not a kind. So the tense aspect is this idea that the is a kind of um everything's relative to a now. And when we, um, you know, so our language picks up on this. So, like in English, you can't really say anything without saying something about the tense. So, when I say it, I'll say was, will, or is. And so, I, you know, just to communicate anything, I end up picking out a particular tense, either past, present, or future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so so deep into our thought and language behavior. Um, uh, but it doesn't have to reflect the actual, you know, so sort of the metaphysics or the physics. So uh, a kind of tenseless theory, sometimes called the block view of time, is just the idea that it all exists. Uh, it doesn't all exist now. It's just all, ex- you know, just like not everything spatially, just like Boston doesn't exist here. You know, San Diego does.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the future doesn't exist now. Uh, by now, we mean simultaneous with me talking uh so i don't uh, so i don't you know shrink it all down to the now just like i don't collapse it all all the space down to this month this location but it's all there yeah Uh,
0: but is there a now because what i now almost seems like bullshit because um it's three hours ahead in boston than it is in san diego or three hours yeah three hours ahead right in boston and so if we just take boston and san diego like like our now and their now is completely different but that's just this country if we take if we go beyond this planet even there could be many different kinds of now that we don't that are on a cosmological basis are just even hard for us to calculate right or i mean is now bullshit, or is now something? Is it enough for us to be here to to declare now a thing?
1: Yeah. So in my other book, uh, "What Makes Time Special," the idea is basically, yeah, that the, the now is bullshit, and but then I try to explain why why we use that bullshit and why it's important to us, even though right. it is bullshit. So those people in Boston, yeah, you know, so there's something happening in Boston, you know, so that it's that is roughly simultaneous with the SNAP.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: so if we want to call that the now, that's and so don't worry about the time zones and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, but we could just think of, you know, I could uh you know send out a I could send out a light ray in principle to somebody some person with a mirror in Boston, have it bounce back, and then I could take my uh Time I emitted the, the light and the time I received it, divide by two. And I would say that was when, that was, that was an event on my light, on, on my world line. Mm-hmm. Uh, that event is when the, the, it hit the mirror over there. I could call that my noun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I, you know, so I could call that by now. So things are approximately simultaneous. And, but I don't have to, you know, why do I come up with that idea of a noun? I think it's just basically because we, it's, uh, we're not moving that fast with respect to each other. And so we can talk about it now. Um, and also that's very useful for us, uh, to do that, you know, so that we, uh, need to assemble the world. We need to solve this kind of problem of we've got all these signals bombarding us, you know, smells and sounds and light. And we need to figure out which things have which things were associated with the same events and which things were associated with different events. And I couldn't, I couldn't solve that problem would die pretty quickly, I think, and not live to mate <laughs> and stuff. And so we need to be able to do that. And so we we put together this kind of nice uh time order, which approximately matches the time order you get in physics. Um and by doing that we are pretty successful. Mm-hmm. But we, but we could, you know, just I think erase now uh, and get by with the earlier than and later than uh, between
0: everything. Mm-hmm. So, but, so- we but we wouldn't be as happy, I think. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I have one more um, kind of deep question, and then we'll get into the fun stuff. We'll start talking about science fiction. So, I have a buddy, uh, an old friend, uh, Mike Ricardi, who is a, um, I believe he does ecological city planning now, but I knew him as a really amazing drummer back in the day. But uh Mike asked um is space time mind independent and if so can we know them as they are in themselves? Or in other words, is our understanding of space time limited by our cognitive faculties?
1: Well, that's uh, that's a big one. Yeah uh, that's a tough big tough question um yeah i I've just sort of uh approached that with, i mean it's a, it's a it's a good question i i I've approached that in my own work just by thinking, well, let me accept basically what physics describes uh, as as physics is the only science that really tries to tackle time itself
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so I, I figure well i I'll go with that, and of course, physics is changing, maybe there'll be a quantum theory of gravity, and things will be different. Uh, you know, who knows what the physical be in a hundred years. Um, and, you know, people do say, well, time is such a deep feature that, and, you know, physics could be wrong or incomplete about, about time. You know, so ultimately physics is measuring, you know, the locations of pointers at different places and all well, times. And it could be missing aspects of time. You know, it might be able to, you know, explain why matter in motion, you know, really well and still be missing something in some deep way. And so I'm open to that being a possibility. And so the, and the, that's the way I'm interpreting, you know, so we might not know time in and of itself. Uh, but the only way I think I can know anything is really through experiment and theory. And that's the best we've got so far. And so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of
0: Yeah. And I would getting, say, too, that in my opinion, like... It has to be mind independent in the sense that, um, and, you know, it's a little easier for me because I'm looking at the question still, but I think the idea that space time has to be kind of mind independent because you wouldn't have been able to find it if you're Einstein, right? Um, if it, if you weren't able to do experiments and find the fundamentals that create it. So it had to be there. Now, there are aspects of space time that I'm sure we're still going to be discovering for years to come. And part of that could be just like the ability to look further and further into the past through telescopes like James Webb and the Hubble and all that. Well, if James Webb ever gets up there. Um But regardless, like um one of the reasons why I think science fiction is so well equipped to examine time is because, um you know we get to play around in science fiction with these concepts. Um Phil K Dick, who is the guy that we do this podcast for, like to play with time. How do you as a person who's researched time feel about how Phil K Dick has approached the issue of time?
1: Well, of course, he was super inventive uh and yeah, I, I I think he's, you know, not, uh, you know, so I get a lot of inspiration from science fiction. And so I read a lot of science fiction. Um, yeah. And so with most of it, you get some, you know, some hits and some misses, uh, <laughs> in, Well, in terms of, you know, what the philosophical or scientific payoff would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, you did, de- that's, the, and that's definitely the, if there's any scientific fiction author of whom that's generally true, That's Philip K. Dick. Right. There's many hits and misses. Uh, And so when it comes to time, you know, he's got many, many uh, novels and short stories that talk about time travel. And so that's a lot of fun. And he talks about it in very different ways and different, different episodes, different stories. Um, In one of my first articles, I think I began it with Counterclock World, which is not a time travel story, but it's instead... Uh, this kind of, um, it's really pretty cool, uh, but it's, uh, it's a little bit weird. Uh, well, that's not surprising. That's uh, right. where, uh, in Counterclock World in 1986, the world enters the Hogarth phase where entropy, uh, flips over. So normally you think of, uh, you know, the direction of time as given by the direction of increasing entropy. And so you think the, the bull walks into the China shop, you know, to, uh, and, you know, the, you know, leaves behind the, you know, uh, all these broken vases and china all on the floor. The later state is one that's much higher entropy than the earlier state. And, you know, all of life, all of everything is due to the low entropy source of the sun giving us all this usable energy. And then we emit out all this unusable energy in the form of high entropy. Anyway, uh, yeah. So the in the Dick story, he he has the arrow flip. But the thing is, the funny thing about it is, is that he doesn't have it doesn't like completely flip because he wouldn't be able to tell the story if it completely flipped. And so people are still talking like normal, even though the direction of time is flipped. You, you know, so they're not doing reverse talking, but they are doing reverse eating and reverse. Uh, you know, it's disgusting, but reverse uh, sort of excrement. They are picking up cigarette stubs from the ground and unsmoking them, cleaning their lungs as they, as it happens. The dead are starting to call from their graves to be let out and anti-age. Uh, and so, and then there's a big business in terms of getting the dead out, uh, from their graves. Uh, but it doesn't all flip. So, you know, to tell a story, you've got to have all these sort of stuff happening, uh, in the norm, normal course of, the direction of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so I, 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 I think maybe, super maybe uh, it's super interesting because it's deep in the. So it's deep in the sense that it, it's perfect. It see it seems possible according to the fundamental laws that you could have the direction of time flip. So it's an awesome idea. The story is just an awesome idea that you could have. You know, these kind of local flips um, seems like it's possible according to most ways of thinking about the fundamental laws. On the other hand, the execution, uh, at least, you
0: know,
1: I uh-huh. have to be made These on having to tell a story, uh, you know, then has problems.
0: Right, well, and, you know, it's possible that, too, I think if I was writing it, I would just imagine that I'm writing what people are saying, but their, their language going backwards might be different. I'm just translating it for this story. I know Isaac Asimov used to make jokes about how I, I'm never going to write a story where I have, like, you know, they walked five glicks. You know, I'm I'm just going to translate it in my story. But yeah. um, Counter Clock World wasn't the only one where he did time slippage is a thing that he worked with before. And in Martian Time Slip, he had a character who, because they were autistic, they perceived time at, at a different pace. So perception of time was something that he... Had done before, which I think you know. You had already talked about um, earlier in this interview is this the lag and the and the concept of it. And you know, I like the idea that somebody would be perceived as having a disability for you know just being you know perceiving time differently. And I wish that was a concept that he'd kind of explore deeper than just Martian time slip, but that is one that we saw too. I wonder what you think about that and, and the idea of people perceiving time differently. Yeah. I need to
1: read that because, you know, there are studies about whether uh, autism affects your perception of time. There are many, many studies of, you know, whether schizophrenia uh, affects your perception of time. Many schizophrenics claim it does. Um, and so, you know, then it, well, it gets into something we haven't really talked about too, which is, you know, when we're talking about time, there's all these different aspects to it. So one is just, like, duration. You know, so is it, you know, so, sort of like, perceived duration, that seems to vary with almost everything anybody's ever studied. Uh, so it wouldn't be surprising if autism or schizophrenia end up affecting, uh, you know, so, like, if you get into a car crash, you'll say, oh, you know, time froze for me. Uh, but you don't think that it froze, you know for everybody right so you think it's just a subjective feature of your mental state at that time maybe it wasn't even a a subjective maybe it wasn't even it was maybe it's just about your memory is maybe more detailed later maybe it laid down more memories because it was such a traumatic event and then now when you go back and think about it maybe now you report it as having seemed like a long time um Anyway, so there's all that kind of thing, and of course, drugs can affect your uh, subjective impression of time. Probably that uh, was inspired.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Boy, those 20 hours I was on speed writing just sure flew by, is I'm sure what he's thinking. Uh,
1: (laughs) It's not that surprising they spent so much time talking about slippages in time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. well yeah and then he also like in stories like Paycheck and the Simulacra he had um this concept of a time scoop where he would where you'd have a device that could just pick out a piece of time to be observed and you couldn't um change anything but you could see time uh forward uh which played heavily into Paycheck which became the movie with Ben Affleck um where he could send himself a message back in time and um uh, you know change the outcome of things. I wonder what you think of the uh the science fictional concept of the time scoop.
1: Yeah, well <laughs> up until the last thing you said I was all I'm all you know, I don't have a problem with it. Uh but you know if it's if there's some sort of changing from what really happened to what to what new really happened, then that kind of thing is not compatible with that kind of block universe we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, there's nothing wrong with getting information from one bit of the block to another bit of the block. So if the scoop, all of it, so if all the scoop does is just have these connections between different, so normally we don't get to have, you know, information from the, uh, you know, the future. Um, and, uh, you know, and lots of, stuff from the past there also we, we were missing out on. Um, but there's no particular reason why you couldn't, you know, basically this information flow is time travel. And according to, you know, arguably, according to general relativity, you could have time travel. Um, so there'd be conditions and it might be hard and it might not be met. In the, those conditions might not be met in the story.
0: Right, well, it's, and, and I... It's, it's logically possible and argue, maybe physically possible. And so um, I just finished a, a, an interesting time travel novel written by a UCSD grad, uh, Gregory Benford. Um, are you familiar with his... Well, I'm. Most people are familiar with Timescape, which is his classic from 1980.
1: I maybe uh, I've even read it, I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, but he just released a book last year called Rewrite, and um, Philip K. Dick and Einstein are actually characters in this book. Um, and Robert Heinlein, too. Uh, and Benford brings to it, and I'm really trying to get him on the show, brings because he's a UC Irvine physicist. Um, he brings not only science, but he knows Philip K. Dick and Heinlein. Uh, obviously he didn't know Einstein, but um, he played with that. And in this book there are The main character time loops where he is in a car accident in 2002 and dies and wakes up in his bed when he's 16 years old in 1968 and figures out that he is quantumly entangled with this moment in 1968. And first he goes back, the first time he goes back, he um has this adventure where he takes all the knowledge he has about movies that happened in his lifetime, Back to the Future, <laughs> Jaws, and he writes them first. <laughs> so, and he becomes friends with Phil K. Deck and Robert Heinlein, and has the, all these things. But then he, once he realizes that it's something that if he dies, he's going to go back to that same spot again, he tries to make the world a better place, but what keeps happening, and I'm kind of giving away a lot of the book, but there's this concept that he has in the book that you can go back in time, and you can change things, but you never change things in your reality. It stayed the same, but you've created this other bubble reality by shooting back to this other moment, and now there's this other universe that is being changed by the changes that you're making. But he's quantumly entangled to this moment where he keeps having these breakaway universes. So I'm wondering how, as a time person, you feel about this concept that um, if you could travel back in time, you thus create another universe, just like you would, for example, like, I dropped this pen, everything changes, right? I don't know how you feel about what do you think about the concept of this, anyways? Yeah, I I think you know
1: it. it well, I'm not a big fan of uh, kind of uh, multi multiverse interpretations of quantum mechanics. Uh, but if you have them, then then I think it, it's it, you know you could make sense of these kinds of things. Yeah. So on a kind of block universe, you could go back in time, and you could you know change things in the sense that you could do things only if that's what always was what you did, uh-huh. you know, so you can't do contradictions, but if you always were back there, you, that you had to, you know, you did it. And so it's, you know, you, you can do it. <laughs> and, but now if you introduce a kind of multiverse picture, yeah, then it's, uh well, it's not very satisfying time travel because, you know, now you, now you, yes, you know, so on the block universe picture, a single block, you, you know, we know you can't go back in time and kill Hitler. Because Hitler did live. Hitler's on the block. You can't have Hitler and not Hitler both at the same event on the block. Only one event is there on the block. And unfortunately, it's the one with Hitler. And yet, you know, now if you introduce multiverses, then you can go back in time and you can kill Hitler. Of course, you didn't save anybody on your, the original block. You know, all you did was, you know, uh you know uh run off to another universe with, with one without hit with one without Hitler. Um you know but that, that kind of picture you could have and you know a lot of people talk about that kind of picture. Um so it's time travel with with the multiverse.
0: And so what you're talking about with the block is a concept that you talked about in the introduction to time about and I wrote it down in my notes as time travel in the book no one wrote, right? So, mm-hmm. and that's that idea that no matter what, if you, you know, there's certain things that are locked in, they're gonna happen. And so even if you traveled back, you know, I think it's the concept of, well, maybe you should explain it instead of me trying to explain it. Can you explain the concept of time travel in the book no one wrote? Yeah, so
1: suppose, uh, yeah, I went to, uh, the, uh, local library and I bought Uh, Shakespeare's, uh, Julius Caesar. And then I jump into my, you know, I've got a kind of TARDIS machine in my house and I jump into the TARDIS and I, I dial it back to 15, whatever, when Shakespeare was born or a little later. And then I run up to him and, you know, knock on his door, dump the, dump the book. And then, you know, he comes out, opens the door, looks up the, looks at the book. It's a little hard for him to translate the contemporary English to, uh you know renaissance english but you know he does so copies it all down has the plays made but because the plays are made then eventually you know printers end up you know somebody writes the story printers print it eventually gets you know uh sold in a bookshop or and in a library and then somebody like me picks it up and so you have this kind of uh circle of uh a kind of clo- you know it's called a closed causal loop where the information contained in the book travels along in this loop. But don't think of it as traveling along, around, 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 because the block, you know, the block is just the block. It doesn't happen many times. It's just all there. Um, where normally, you know, if A causes B and then B causes C, then A is before B and B is before C. Now you have A causes B, B causes C, C causes A where, you know, because Shakespeare wrote that down, it then got, you know, made into a play, it then got picked up into a library, it then got sent to, uh you know, back in time to Shakespeare. And so in that kind of picture, you have no one who, you know, no one who came up with the story, and yet yeah, it's completely consistent logically. And so the philosophers like to think about the different time travel stories in science fiction and film and divide them up into the consistent ones and the inconsistent ones. (laughs) Right. So to think about Terminator 1, I think it's consistent. You know, so, uh, you know, there the Terminator is traveling back in time. But if if the Terminator didn't do what the Terminator did, then there wouldn't have been the the dark, uh, evil future from which, which created him in the first place. And so, in, in a way, he, you know, you could think he had to do it or that. But uh, the shirt I'm wearing, Twelve Monkeys. People right. think of Twelve Monkeys as one of the great consistent stories. Um, Bruce Willis goes back into the past not to change it, but to find out what happened, so that later in the future they can, you know, come up with a cure. It then turns out that his actions end up being crucial in creating the, what you know, the plague that happened. Um, anyway,
0: oh, so I've, got ca- I've got one. I've got one, and you talked about it in your book. But I'll uh, use "Zombies" by uh, Robert Heinlein, which was also made into a film, uh, "Predestination" with Ethan Hawke. Does that one fit? Is is, is in that loop, or is that yeah, one too wacky? Yeah, no,
1: no, that one's uh, that one, that that one's for, is actually mentioned in a very very famous philosophy of time paper by David Lewis on time travel. In which he says that that's consistent. It's also the example where I, I I completely failed as a teacher. I remember saying to my class that that thing is that that story is consistent. And then I said, you know, and you can tell if it's consistent because you can just draw a space time diagram of what happened. And if you can draw it, because the world is consistent, you should be it should be consistent. And then I went to the board and then tried to draw the space time diagram off the off the cuff of what happened. <laughs> it was there. The protagonist is his own mother and father. Uh, It ends up being this kind of triple embedded loop uh, with an entry and exit. uh, When you try to draw the the person's lifetime Mm -hmm. on a space time diagram, it's very confusing. Um, But uh, I think on Wikipedia somebody did it, or there's some place where if you Google it, it comes up a consistent drawing. But all your zombies is great because then it also shows that you know that sort of old sci-fi, you know, you tend to think of it as sort of more conservative, like uh, Asimov and that. Uh, but you could see actually a Heinlein, you know, sort of when maximally weird right from the get go, <laughs> right? Uh, the yeah. consistent maximally weird right from the get
0: go, <laughs> right? Uh, and I think uh, Harlan Ellison's episode of The Outer Limits, Soldier, the one he sued um, James Cameron over for The Terminator, is also what? another really good example of of the of the looping consistent science fiction. So now we've talked about some of the ones that are really well done. What what are some of the time travel novels or films that bug you the most? Uh, or the, the well,
1: obviously the worst one is Back to the Future, right? I mean, what the hell is going on there with the the you know the photographs and the faces vanishing off from the photographs? That that's really hard to explain. You know, uh, you could try to invent a bunch of new metaphysics and physics to try to come up with you know why I don't know quantum leap happens or, or some of the Star Trek episodes are not so consistent, but well, some are I think.
0: But, uh, well, one of the fun parts Back of to the
1: future is really problem.
0: <laughs> well, I have two funny things about that. One is that in Gregory Benford's book, um, part of one of the time loops is that, um, the main character, uh, Charlie and Einstein rewrite Back to the Future in one of the time loops. Um, <laughs> and so, like, Einstein gets a, um, a, a reincarnated Einstein gets a writing credit on on this revised version of Back to the Future. And, um, one thing that's really funny about that is, uh, I recently heard Sean Carroll, the, uh, cosmologist, say that, um, in one of his meetings with Marvel over, uh, Endgame, and he couldn't talk about it for years because he was em- embargoed, but he had met with the filmmakers and, um, he said that he was the one that basically explained to them why Back to the Future was bullshit, which became a light of dialogue in Endgame. <laughs> <laughs> they just said. I mean, you're telling me, and he was like, I'd like to take credit for that line. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, that's uh, great. I didn't know that. Um,
0: yeah, and, um, but um, I, I'm sure there's others. Where are some other ones? I mean, um, I know Back to the Future is the big one. What about um, the, uh, what was the Time After Time? How do you feel about Time After Time, the H.G. Wells, uh, Jack the Ripper one? Uh, yeah, I don't know
1: that one so well.
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah, because that one I, I think um, you know, it's a, it's a fun movie, but again like Back to the Future, there's sometimes where I, I find myself scratching my head on that one but uh, I don't know are there uh, any other ones that really, really bother you? <laughs> uh, Looper was great, I thought, until the end uh, when,
1: so the whole, I don't know if you remember Looper.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're big fans of Looper here.
1: Yeah, so he was holding consistent it was holding steady and consistent through most of the film, if I remember. And then at the end, when, uh, Oh, then, then at the end, he's able to shoot him. He's able to shoot. What, what happens? He shoots himself at the end.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then it, but then it ends up, it does end up undoing something. If I, if I remember, mm-hmm. I, I, I remember it as being basically consistent through like 90% of the show. And then, you know,
0: yeah like uh, a fast break where the guy misses the dunk um.
1: <laughs> also, many, many films where we don't know where there's just not enough information in the film like Bill and Ted's Excellent adventure if they if they brought them back and put them put them back you know and maybe wipe their memories or something right based in history then maybe it's consistent I don't
0: know <laughs> right well and that you know the big one with you know Doctor who and We're both Doctor Who fans here, but um, I mean, there's so much hand waving you have to do with Doctor Who, and and I think there's probably a lot of times where you're like, "Oh, this is a fun one. I like this one," but then, but at the same time, I think Doctor Who gets a little bit more of a pass because it's so much more fantasy than 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 it is science fiction, really.
1: Yeah, I don't know why. Yeah, so I I love Doctor Who as well, and I don't know why I'm so happy to give it a pass, uh, (laughs) but. Yeah, is it's just good fun, and I don't know Well uh, but all that. Weird, 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 uh time being a wiggly, wobbly,
0: <laughs> timey, wimey. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, the theory behind that is not so clear. Right. Well, and I think with Doctor Who, the only way to actually, um, I think, make sense of it is is you have to kind of go with a multiverse concept of it. Um, I mean, you kind of have to that there is this kind of multiverse that the doctor is traveling between. And maybe the only consistent thing we're seeing is, is him, right? Through, through all of it. Um, him or her, I should say. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think I, I kind of go okay with, with, with that, <laughs> with that. But, um, so, okay. Now here's a big question that, that we can kind of start to wrap things up with, which is, you know, I, well, first of all, have you ever thought about writing science fiction to try and get some of these ideas out um, yourself?
1: I, I would love to, but I don't, I don't think I could have the skill for it. But I, I do think about it every now and then. But, I mean, I've, I've got a, a rich, you know, a rich you know, amount of information on, having spent my life thinking about all these sorts of things.
0: <laughs> right, right. So now, on yeah. that note, there's a yeah, lot whole... of...
1: But that doesn't, you know, as you know, that doesn't give you... doesn't mean, you know, somebody can be good at one thing, but not good at another thing.
0: uh, Well, but there are a lot of really good storytellers who are out here listening to this podcast. So, do you have any challenges you'd like to put out to the science fiction community? Um, Things that you would like to see us explore more with time travel? Mm. I know that's a big one. (laughs) Um. I don't know. The problem is, you yeah, science fiction is usually out,
1: out in front first, so it's <laughs> hard to, to imagine being out in front of the thing that's usually most out in front.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, is there something that you're just like, man, I think about this aspect of time all the time, why hasn't anyone touched on this?
1: The second half of my more serious book, "The What Makes Time Special, talks a lot about... Uh, Think, you know, so it has, like, a couple of chapters on uh, looking at the world sideways. So, you know, normally you think of this a block and time is going up, and I have a lot of stuff on whether you could, you know, if we could tell the story of the world going sideways, sort of, you know, from east to west instead of uh, past to future. So taking taking really seriously the kind of block and then thinking about evolving. Um, so I have a lot of stuff on, like, whether physics could deduce what will happen. So not next in time, but the, you know, the next street over, given all of time I once bought. So I don't see that kind of, I haven't seen the most I've seen that there's Greg Egan has a book where he reimagines physics where, uh, where, uh, you have a non, non relativistic signature and it's really technical and hard to get into <laughs> right The heart is really hard, uh, very very difficult
0: um but uh um and and what's the title of your book with the about time being special um uh what makes time special what is that is the title of the book okay yeah um i uh didn't get a chance to read all your stuff yet, but I'm, I'm going to because I, I'm super fascinated with this and I might take up that, cha- that sideways challenge. So
1: uh, maybe another thing is, I mean, I have science fiction authors already taken it up, but just to give a kind of shout out because I think it's really awesome. Uh, well thinking of Greg Egan. He's got that short story, uh, the hundred thousand light year diary. Have you ever seen this? No. So the idea is, uh, the astronomers find a time-reversed galaxy. They bounce information off it, and it comes back before they bounce before they sent it. And in in light of this mechanism, the government sets up these satellites which bounce information off that sad, satellite. And so each day, at the end of the day, you get about ten minutes to type up what happened that day. You then send you know you then send it from your computer up to the satellite. It then sends it to the, this galaxy. End result, when you're born, you're given the book called the book of my life. And it's, every, it's everything you wrote about what's going to happen to you. And so it's an awesome way to think about what would, you know, does our freedom, does our f- sense of free will, is it all due just to ignorance about the future? So it's a great way to get uh, a mechanism for getting the information about the future. And so the protagonist is about to type, like, the T in, uh, you know, he goes, I know I do type the T here, but do I have to? Uh, but I did because I can see it here in the book of my life. Okay.
0: He's,
1: about to, he, he's about to go meet this woman who he knows is going to become his wife. She knows he, he's going to cheat on him and be a dirtbag. And then she knows she's still going to fall in love with him and, and does. Um and so there's that, and then there's, you know, uh, Ted Chang's, uh, you know, the story that Arrival was based on, uh, oh, the story of my life, which also is, uh, I saw an interview with him. They did a, uh, a premiere of Arrival at UCSD, and they had a Q&A with him afterwards. And he said in the first draft of the book, there were no aliens. Isn't that weird?
0: Right. Cause it seems so, so important to the story.
1: Yeah, so he wanted to get at this kind of emotional question of if you knew what was going to happen, what, you know, would you do it differently? And so then he thought of the aliens as a, as a mechanism for doing that. Uh, but anyway, this question of, you know, uh, if you had information from the future, you know, would it just sort of demolish our way of thinking about free will? Uh, you know, so that would be time, you know, another way of course of doing it would just have be time travel or, or Dick Scoop uh, going, you know, but you know, getting a scoop from the future,
0: <laughs> right? Uh,
1: but if you had all that information, um, and apart from you know it being physically difficult due to the thermodynamics, you know, if the information's is there, it should you should be able to get it? And <laughs> uh, would it then destroy everything? And so, I like these stories where the uh, people have, you know, science fiction authors have imagined ways of. Getting information from the future and then thinking through all, well, you know, some things that really are so sort of very deep for about being a human being, uh, and that really seem to rely on just the mere, the, the contingent fact that we can't get information from the future.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Well, uh, Craig, I really appreciate your time because, uh, um, it is so special, right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> And thank you for giving us a block of it. Um, where can, um, people find out more about your ideas? Um, what books do you have? What kinds of things online would you point people to if they wanted to learn more about your work? Yeah, I think
1: pretty much everything they can get, uh, at CraigCalendar.com, uh, if they spell my name right, uh, which is not Z- C-A-L-L-E-N-D-E-R. And, um, and there there'll be links to my books and articles and and whatnot.
0: Mhm. Yeah, and you, there's a lot of really good interviews with you on uh YouTube as well. Um and uh so, you know, you don't have to end here. You can uh look more into uh Craig's work online. I highly recommend it. Uh YouTube is where I first discovered Craig just floating around looking for things on time and when I saw that you were here local, I was like, oh, man, I, I, I want to get him on the show just because I think time is, I mean, it's obviously fun- fundamental to everything that, that you know, we do as human beings, but it's also so fundamental to the career of Philip K. Dick. And, and I, I want the dickheads out there to really think deeper about these issues, because one of the reasons we do this podcast is, is not only so we can learn more from PKD by looking deeper, but. So, his influence can go deeper um into the writers of the next generation and the philosophers too. So, I appreciate your time. Thank you, Craig. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. yeah, it's very nice to talk to you too.